For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Brendan, this is not your ordinary podcast. Yeah, this is a special edition of a TFL podcast. We like to call the TFL Classics podcast, where we talk about some old cars. But we're actually going to talk about a whole line or a whole generation of cars. That's what am right. I trying to say here, Tommy? We're going to talk about every generation of this particular car ever made. It's not so much of a secret, Brendan, but we are yeah. talking about Corvettes today. Yes. <laughs> so we are discussing all eight generations of Corvette, but specifically focusing on the generations we think you're going to care about the most, which is the affordable generation from the 80s and 90s and the 2000s, because these are the cars that we've owned and have experience with and have drag racing and all sorts of cool stuff with. We're talking about car snobs today as well, and um, this whole love of the of exotic cars that, um, well, you probably should just go buy a Corvette. We're also answering some of your questions, talking about Brendan's fleet, and talking about some interesting news of the week. So, Brendan, before we get into the Corvette extravaganza, update me on your classic fleet. What's been going on? Oh, my gosh. Well, I've been selling a lot and buying a lot. So, I've, you know, I've, I'm down to about 11 cars right now. Down to 11? Yeah, down to I, I My max was at about 13. Um, but I've been selling down a few. Um, and there are some that are on the chopping block, such as the Explorer is kind of on the chopping block right now. The manual transmission Explorer, huh? Yep. Uh, I, I, it's not up for sale yet, but it's going to be fairly soon. Um, I've been enjoying driving my Mitsubishi Eclipse yes. and my newly acquired 97 Ford Taurus Blob. <laughs> the Blob. <laughs> the Blob, yeah. It's not a very pretty car, but... Uh, it has working AC, which is the only car I currently have that has 100% functioning AC. So Brendan bought this really cool late 90s Eclipse, which is filling up my late 90s Need for Speed fantasy, <laughs> you know, yeah. dub edition. <laughs> um, and it's a really cool car. It's a two-door manual transmission. Yep, and it's got the V6. Mm-hmm. It's a cool so, car. So for for the year that it came out, it was a, which is a 2000, uh, it's the top trim that you could get back then, the GT V6 and... Yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun, but it's um, it needs a crankshaft position sensor, which means at any given moment I could go out to start it and it just not starts. So <laughs> I uh, have been trying to drive it sparingly. It also, the AC only works once you're going above about 40 miles an hour. That is a very peculiar set of issues. Yeah. Very peculiar. What about the Yukon? You still have the Yukon? Yes, the Yukon is finally going in uh, next week to get its new oil pump, a new rear main seal, oil pan gasket, and a transmission cooler line. So a lot of work that's been needing to be done in that, and it's been parked because of that, but it's going to be back up on the road very soon. And then, I still got the Del Sol? 
Yes, which recently got keyed. Yes, at the office. A yes. terrible thing happened. Someone came and actually keyed a bunch of cars, which is a real bummer because they didn't get any of the company cars if that was their goal. First of all, screw you. Second of all, <laughs> you failed because you got Brendan's poor Del Sol and um, producer Zach's poor Mazda. And um, it was just really unfortunate. So um, I, I really, yeah. we have the security footage and we're working on bringing that person to justice. But what a terrible thing. Yeah, and believe it or not, my insurance. So I actually submitted an claim. I know the paint on it wasn't great if some of you had seen the Del Sol video. But I did submit it to my insurance to get it fixed and they just immediately said, oh, I think we're gonna total it. Over <laughs> so, a, your bright green Del Sol? My bright green Del Sol. And oh, I just, man. I kind of, I pushed back a little bit on them and I said, do you know that this was a one-year-only color? It's an SI. Yes, I know it's not in the best of shape, but it's worth more than what it would cost to fix the paint. But we'll see. It's going to take a little back and forth with the insurance. We'll see what ends up happening. It still runs that. good, though. Yeah, it runs great. Yeah, it runs I fixed good. it all mechanically. And then got the town car? Yep. Desperately trying to get the AC fixed in that. So far, I'm about $1,000 into just fixing the AC in it. And I still need to spend some more. So, <laughs> Man. It's been a rabbit hole for sure. Man, so most of your fleet is, fleet is broken, is what you're saying. Oh, yeah, besides this brand newly acquired Taurus. <laughs> yeah, the blob. <laughs> the blob. <laughs> I, d I don't, in I mean, it's an okay car to drive, but uh, I just needed something that worked, and so I ran out and just bought the first, the first cheap working car I could find. Blobby car you could find, <laughs> yeah. absolutely. Well, what we're talking about today, Brendan, is the world of Corvettes. Um, and the reason that this came along is because I have been listening to other podcasts, competitor podcasts, if you will. Uh, I, I like a bunch of car podcasts, a lot of really talented folks out there. But the, the hot zeitgeist in the world of cars right now is anything Porsche. Really? You know, and I, I see a lot of podcasts centered around Porsche that talk about the brand and, you know, hype it up. And, and, and it, granted, it's a fantastic brand. They make some great cars. But we've been playing around with these affordable Corvettes now for a few months. And I've come to figure out that due to perhaps a little bit of snobbery in the car community, a lot of people are overlooking some of the best performance cars on the market um, for the smallest amount of money. So in today's video, we're hoping to tell the Corvette story and can convince people why it might be a good option, even if it is a slightly obvious option for your like sports car purchase. Sure. And it's actually, you know, in doing the research for this podcast, it's a really interesting car. Um, and I don't think a lot of people realize just how interesting it is if you go through the history of it. And we're going to start all the way at the C1, which debuted in 1953 and was made all the way to 1962. Uh, two, and it was commonly referred to as the solid axle generation because it had a rear solid axle. And that's kind of a crazy thing to think as far as a sports car goes, but that's what they were doing when it first came out. Well, to be honest, Mustang was doing that through 2014. So <laughs> That's true. Yeah. But when you think of, you know, like a Ferrari or a, you know, Corvette or things like that, like a, a solid axle is not something you uh, think of it's as true. far as that goes. But this car, when they debuted it as a concept car, it was so popular as a concept car that it went from concept to first production car in six months. Yes. Well, the story behind it is interesting because um, Harley Earl, who was the head of GM styling division at the time, right, saw all these GIs returning from the battlefield from World War II, bringing over their 
two-seater, two-door convertible sports cars. They're MGs and their Triumphs and their Jaguars. And he saw this excitement and popularity with those cars, which pre-World War II wasn't as popular in the US, right? But folks that, that were abroad in the UK and in Germany, right, got to experience these cars that came over to the States and there really wasn't an option to experience that. So Harley Earl came up with the concept of a C1 Corvette. So 1953, um, and as you mentioned here in the notes, the first 300 were essentially hand-built. Exactly, yeah, because they came out with this car so fast that the production facility to make them wasn't ready yet when they were making it. So the first year, which was only 300 unit run, they were just hand-built in like a makeshift production facility until the actual production facility was up and running by 19 for the 1954 model year. Um, and because of that, reviews were kind of mixed and sales fell short of expectations because the quality just wasn't there. This, this wasn't like a mass-produced car. This was, at first, you know, the first 300 that came out were just a hand-built odd car that had random leaks and fitment issues in different areas. But yeah, and it was it was almost killed because of that. Well, the interesting thing about the Corvette, right, is it's known for its composite material, but even dating back to the early 50s, it launched with the fiberglass reinforced plastic outside body shell. And one of the big issues that, that, that GM kind of made a misstep on with the Corvette is they were competing against MGs and Triumphs and the like, but they offered at launch a six-cylinder engine only producing 150 horsepower and a two-speed power glide automatic only. <laughs> so they yeah. were launching a sports car that to a lot of Americans didn't have a very sporty powertrain, the Blue Flame inline six and a two-speed power glide, zero to 60 in a whopping 11 and a half seconds. So they finally figured out in order to bring the performance needed um, to the masses, what they had to do is put the V8, the small block V8 in them. So they, they debuted in 55, the 265 cubic inch engine. Yeah. Well, I, the one thing I will say that I think they got right from the get-go is the low price. They wanted to make this, you know, not a super expensive car. They wanted, as you had mentioned, the American soldiers to be able to afford to buy this. And it came out with only a $3,500 price tag. And if you convert that to $2023, that's about $40,000, which... <laughs> If there was a $40,000 Corvette today, I think it would just fly off the shelves as the current one is. But um, yeah, it's, it's just interesting that they made it such an affordable car and that was their direction from the get-go. But when they you know, saw their flaw in coming out with the uh, six-cylinder in 1955, they did introduce the 265 cubic inch V8 that pumped power up to a whopping 195 horsepower. Which honestly, if you look at the 1950s, wasn't that bad, especially considering these were small cars. Uh, ultimately, in 56, to change the body, they discontinued the inline six, and then uh, later they bumped up the power in the early C1s. But the interesting thing about C1s, I, I think that the early ones, especially these ones that had the little grates over the headlights, sure. are some of the most stunning looking cars of all time. I think the proportions are great with those teeth in the front, the little bumperettes, the way the rear license plate is covered. Gorgeous cars. Um, and they're really small. If you've ever seen one in person, or interacted with one in any ways, I mean, I think you would probably stick out above the windshield, like well, six feet tall. The other tall. thing too, yeah. I've actually, I've sat in a C1. Mm -hmm. I've, I haven't driven one, but I sat in one and the steering wheel is huge. <laughs> and the seat is very close to the steering wheel. So for someone like me, that's got a little bit of a gut, the steering wheel was like, almost touching my stomach. Big problem. Yeah, and so, you know, you're kind of driving with, 
you know, like T-Rex arms where you've got your hands really close to your body. Yes, 100%. <laughs> it's kind of an interesting driving position. And then they kind of tweaked the design and the later ones had the quad headlights, which I always thought were kind of ugly. Um, people like the quad headlights, right? But they just looked a little bit like bugs to me. Sure. But the earliest form of the C1, I think, is the most one of the most beautiful cars of all time in the way that the, the fins kind of reach these little jet fire taillights. Absolutely gorgeous car and pretty revolutionary at the time, right? Ford responded with the Thunderbird yep. um, shortly thereafter, which kind of went in a different direction than what Chevrolet did. But the Corvette quickly evolved into more performance, more handling, and more speed. And we really started to see the evolution of speed in the C2 generation of Corvette. Yep, and this came out in 1963 and sold through 1967. And the most valuable ones are that first year because this originally came with that split window rear, uh, that split rear window. Um, but because of complaints of rear visibility, that was quickly changed in 1964 to just one solid piece of glass rather than two windows back there. But the base engine on these guys was a 327 cubic inch V8 pumping out 250 horsepower and could be had with all the way up to a 427 pumping out 435 horsepower. So this is kind of really when they were coming into their own of what the Corvette was going to become, which is a very powerful American V8 rear-wheel drive sports car. Yeah, right. Independent rear suspension. I think probably, once again, one of the most beautiful designs of all time. That rear split window is a funny story. Um, so people who bought 63s, there was actually a kit you could buy like in a popular mechanics magazine that would allow you to, to convert your split rear window to a solid pane of glass. Oh man. Because in 65, if you had a 63 with a split rear window, people knew you had an old Corvette, right? Oh, so people like wanted yeah. to like make it look newer. Nowadays, the exact opposite's happening where people will buy like a 64, 65, 66 and convert it to the split window because they're worth so much more. But back in the day, people were like, yeah, this is just an old car. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, um, huge power available, right? You, like you, you were talking about, you could have um, the 327 V8, all the way up to the 427, 435 horsepower. What is this saying here? One was awarded to Bart Starr for being MVP of the first Super Bowl. Yes, I think that's an interesting piece of information. The first ever Super Bowl, which they didn't even call the Super Bowl at the time. They had some sort of weird amalgamation of names uh, because it was like the AFL, NFL championship or whatever. But um, yeah, Bart Starr, who was the MVP of that game, actually was awarded the Corvette. And that later, I mean, that became kind of you know, just like them saying I'm going to Disneyland, that became just a regular thing where the MVP of the Super Bowl won a Corvette. And then, of course, you had the connection to um, the moon landings with Neil Armstrong, right? And yep. then, of course, the NASA astronauts who received Corvettes later on. Um, and then another interesting thing you 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 hit you point out here is the handling was really good by American standards. It was, yeah. So that C1 wasn't really known as a handling vehicle, but with this one, over half the weight sits over the rear axle which was kind of the first time an American front engine car had that kind of weight distribution, and that resulted in it actually being able to go around a turn, unlike most American cars at the time. Mm -hmm. And the you know the other thing that I kind of like to mention too when talking about the C2 Corvette is Mongoose Motorsports. Okay. They actually built a recreation of the 1963 Corvette Grand Sport race car. Um, only five of those originally were built, but when Mongoose introduced this, I think it's probably one of the best looking uh, kit cars that has ever been made. And it's you can buy those for like 
sixty, seventy thousand dollars, whereas one of these C two Corvettes would be you'd be looking at a lot more. Yeah, hundred percent. No, fantastic cars, easily one of the most beautiful. And moving on to C three, right? The Stingray uh, generation of Corvette um, was launched in C two. C three, we see more evolution. C threes. Um, from a design standpoint, have kind of that iconic Coke bottle shape where they rise in the front, dip in the middle, and then rise toward the rear again. And these were produced from 68 through 82. Now, this was a pretty wide variety of cars. So some of the um, some of the early cars are very desirable, very, very powerful. But by the time you got to 81, 82, emissions had come into play. All sorts of standards had come into play. And these cars really became, well, cars that look cool but perform very poorly. But tell me a little bit about some of the mechanics and some of the interesting features in this car. Yeah, so um, this this basically when it first came out was a continuation of the C2 with a different body. And in doing so, a lot of those engines and transmissions were kind of carried over, at least initially until emissions started to change things. Um, but some of the interesting things that I think I, I like about this is this was the first Corvette to offer T-tops. So it was the first time you can get a, an interesting, like a hard removable splitting top on the, the roof of your car. And it had hideaway wipers, which had never been done on a Corvette. And then the door handles were flush with the tops of the doors, and which also had never been done on a Corvette before. So, yeah, yeah just a lot of interesting different firsts for GM, um, you know, like they didn't have any more side vent windows as well, which... If you think about cars from the 60s, 50s, 70s, having that little uh, vent window that opens on the side is pretty iconic. But this was the first Corvette to go away from that completely. As you mentioned here, I mean, the engine options range from a 305 5 liter, which in California form barely pumped up 180 horsepower toward the end of the range, all the way up to some of like the L71 options, 427 cubic inch V8s making 435 horsepower, 460 pound-feet of torque, Important in 62, they changed how they measured power, right? Yeah, because they went from gross power to net power. So if you look at the 1971 versus 72 Corvettes, you're going to notice a huge uh, power drop. You know, like, for example, the 350 V8 was producing 300 horsepower in 1971, and in 1972, it was producing 200 horsepower. And in all reality, that horsepower didn't actually change, just how they measured it changed. And it went to, I mean, going to net is a more accurate number of how to represent the power of the cars. So that just kind of tells you that all along, it was really just producing 200 horsepower for the entry-level V8. Yeah, and then um, with the mission standard, right, you, you talk about, you know, some of the really low-powered engines. Yeah, um, I mean, which... 165 horsepower was the top engine in uh, 1975. That yeah. was the most powerful one you can pretty get. Pretty wimpy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, pretty so. weak. But, um, you know, you talk about mid-'70s, right? Eight seconds to 60, 7.7 seconds to 60. Still was a quick car back in the day. That's true. Every car in the late 70s was emissions choked, right? Everything had been completely, like, neutered. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, it was it was a classic case of uh, Chevrolet, you know, having to, to, to downgrade power to meet the mission standards. But... So the C1, C2, and C3 make great collector's cars. The prices range from, I mean, you can get a C3, late C3 for 15 grand for a good one, all the way up to some special C2s and C1s that could be six-figure cars, right? Easily. Yeah, I mean, I've even seen some of these late C3s, you know, like the 165 horsepower versions, (laughs) you know, under $10,000. 
But they're at that price point, you're really not getting a fast car, right? You're getting a car that looks cool going down the road, but isn't really a performance machine. The earlier versions of the C3s definitely command a high premium because of the lack of emissions on them. They put out a lot more power. But yeah, a lot of those early Corvettes do range in price. I mean, you can get well over six figures in some of those early C1s for Mm -hmm. sure. Yeah, easily. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Now, what we want to focus on in this podcast is I think the three or four generations that we're talking about next, which represent really good value for money when it comes to cheap, affordable, fun-to-drive performance. Because C1, C2, C3 make great collector's cars. It's a pretty antiquated experience by modern day standards, right? Absolutely. You're, you're driving in a lot of cases um, vehicles that you know were designed six, seven decades ago, right? In a different world with thin bias ply tires, with antiquated braking systems by modern standards. But starting with C4 at the launch in 1984, there was no 83 model year. 1984, we start to see a Corvette that that brings a brand into the modern era. Yeah, and this was an all-new chassis. The C3 was based on that C2 platform. So if you bought like a 1982 Corvette, it was based on a car designed <laughs> the, in the 1963, yeah. which 50s, they just, basically, which basically yeah. yeah, they started designing in the 50s. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Convert your current recessed lighting with energy-saving LED downlights from Fight Electric. They're bright and install easily in just minutes. They also go from regular lighting to nightlight mode with just a simple flip of a switch. Save big on all Fight Lighting products now at Menards. Shop our lighting options today in store and on menards.com save big money at menards so when 19 when the corvette relaunched in 1984 it was a big deal it was revolutionary for the time and it, it was a, a performance machine compared to what was previously represented with the Corvette. Well, and the funny thing, too, is if you look at the history of the Corvette, specifically the C4 and C5, there are many times in the Corvette history, even a transition to C6 and C7, where um, GM management was trying to cancel the program. Yeah. Because if you look at the sales numbers of Corvettes compared to a Cavalier, right, or a Nova at the time, or whatever, it may have been a Citation, right, they were low-volume cars. And throughout history, there's been so many times where um, uh, Chevrolet management's just like, we don't need this. You know, this is a niche car that, that doesn't speak to the bottom line as much as some of the other products do, like like the C or K-series truck, the Silverados, that kind of thing. Um, but the C4 was, like, as you mentioned, a huge departure. It was, a, you know, a, a completely different car than the Zora um, Duntoff design C3. And it brought in, for the first time, modern computer-aided design, brought in modern suspension, modern brakes. These are cars that even today, as we've proven with Case's car, which we've drag raced many, many times as 88 yeah. Corvette, perform super well. It does, yeah. And it was also, again, a lot of firsts for the Corvette. I mean, this was the first Corvette to have an all-glass hatchback. Um, It was also the first Corvette to have an electronic dashboard with a digital liquid crystal display instrument cluster. We're talking 1984, and this is really high-tech stuff. And then this was also the first Corvette not to use body-on-frame construction. Now, it's an interesting thing with Corvettes, right? Because a lot of the, even, you know, if if you look at C4, they use plastic bumpers versus fiberglass bumpers on the early ones. But a lot of the components um, are still replaceable, like the huge clamshell hood. So you have written down here, it's not a unibody um, per se. They describe it as a uniframe, huh? Yeah, because technically to be unibody, 
you have to have some of the exterior body panels that have to be like structural members of the car. But in this, none of the exterior body panels are structural members. So it's not unibody. Uh, it's it's kind of its own thing, you know. It's not a body on frame. It's not unibody. It's just kind of in this weird in between spot. Now, what's interesting about the Corvette? Let's let's circle back to that dashboard with the digital liquid display, right? Is um by the time '82 came around, that C3 was ancient. Yes. Funny enough, sales were still going up in in the late '70s. They were selling quite a few Corvettes, but it was. As you mentioned, a car that was 20-plus years old. Well, with the C4, they wanted to break away from the reputation of the Corvette altogether. They wanted to make a true, cutting-edge, modern sports car. And to do that, they incorporated some really wild technology, like the full digital dashboard, um, which was, I think, a little bit too advanced. Sure. Yeah, and I know some of those digital dashboards were a little temperamental. They all are very temperamental. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Cases has that. Though. Yeah, right. And and like automatic climate control and um, these um, 1980s computers that tell you when things have go, go wrong with them, right? And and they've got the um, C4 was the introduction of the skip shift program where you have to go from one through one first gear to fourth gear if you get an automatic um, to save fuel, right? Sure. Uh, and they were really experimenting with a lot of stuff. And especially the early ones, like 84 through really 90, 89, 90, um, people, people, the Corvette, the Corvette buyer didn't, didn't like that very much because it was typically an older demographic that, that was used to traditional needles mm-hmm. and dials and old school technology. And here you had this crazy computer on wheels that was just blowing their minds. So starting in 89, 90, they switched to more conventional interior. Um, and then of course, going into the nineties, the cars got a little bit smoothed out. But um, I mean, the, the, the C4 was the first Corvette that was designed from the get-go as having target top and having a convertible. Yep. So it was designed to be really rigid, even without a roof. Well, and what's interesting though, is because they decided to go with that target top, there was no structural member tying the windshield frame mm. to the halo as there was on the C3. And this required them to put an extremely tall side rail on the frame to maintain chassis rigidity. And as a result, it was actually, it made like these door sills really deep and it made the car a lot harder to get into and out of. Again, kind of alienating that older clientele that usually bought the Corvettes. And that's what I noticed. I mean, I rode in Case's Corvette today and that's the first thing I noticed is sliding in and out of that seat was a bit of a challenge. Yeah, and it, it I mean, it really is very difficult to get in and out of a C4 Corvette because the sill is huge, right? And they also had some other kind of kind of funky, kind of kind of funky design elements like the handbrake is on the left. But because the sill is already so huge, you lift up the handbrake to turn it on, then you push it down into like an off position to get out, and then you pull it back up again to disengage it. So really weird handbrake um, activation. And, and the other thing about the, especially the early C4 Corvettes, is they had a lot of technology, but they kind of struggled figuring out how to in- integrate it. Because, I mean, if you consider 84, right, this was, a, this was a vehicle that was designed probably starting in the late 70s. And if you think about computers in the late 70s, I mean, we're talking pre-Commodore 64 era, (laughs) right? Imagine running a car in such antiquated technologies. So I've heard they've got weird problems that pop up, like voltage feeds from one computer module to another computer module, which means they're all interconnected. So you can have an issue where if you've got like a corroded windshield wiper motor, the air conditioning might not work because the voltage flows through the windshield wiper motor into the uh, air conditioning computer module. 
So really kind of weird stuff like that. Well, um, I know that the Crossfire ignition system is also known to be very problematic in some of the early ones. I think especially like the first two years, yeah. 84 and 85, those are pretty problematic. So I think Crossfire was like, like you said, I think it was 84 only. Oh, um, was it 84? I think it was, okay. the internal code was like L, L83 on that engine, 5.7 V8. And the best way I've heard Crossfire described is it's the best part of fuel injection and the best part of a carburetor taken out and thrown away. <laughs> so you got the you got the worst of it all worlds, highly complicated, antiquated suspen- or, um, sensors and computers that operated that. Just a disaster. Well, and I'm curious to know what you think of the manual transmission that was offered through 88, the Doug Nash 4.3 uh, transmission where it's a four-speed manual coupled to an automatic overdrive on the top three gears. Now, Case has this in his Corvette. And I think it's just, it's really interesting. I don't know that I've seen that in other manual transmissions. I'm sure there's one out there. Maybe you guys can let us know in the comments below. Uh, but it's just, it's kind of interesting to have a manual with a push-button overdrive. It is super weird. Yeah, I mean, it's um, it's, a, it's a really confusing system. How Jaloptic describes it is a Borg Warner T4 10 four-speed with an overdrive bolted to the ass end, but you have three overdrive positions. So you go first gear, second gear, then once you're cruising in second gear, you can push a button on the top of the shifter and it shifts into like a two and a half gear. So the revs decay and then you can cruise around with second overdrive. Then if you go into third, it's actually shorter than second overdrive. So third (laughs) is now a separate gear with its own overdrive. So you can do three overdrive. Once again, the revs decay, and then you click that off fourth gear, cruise around a fourth gear, push the button, fourth gear overdrive, which is the only one that really makes sense. Because most people aren't cruising along the road at 40 miles an hour in third gear thinking, you know, I'm not going to go to fourth. I'm going to (laughs) engage third gear overdrive. Right. It's such a weird transition. Well, if you think about it, it's like a seven-speed manual. Sort of. In a way. But the ratios don't line up properly. That's true. Because to shift it right, you go first gear, second gear, third gear, second gear overdrive, third gear overdrive, fourth gear, fourth gear overdrive. And no one would ever do that, right? Yeah. Uh, But what's crazy is it's like an interesting combination of an automatic and a manual because when you're driving along in fourth gear and you select overdrive, like on some cars, it's it's not very dramatic. The revs decay a little bit. But in this, it feels like it's engaging another gear. So you'd be going... I mean, it's really a weird thing. Yeah, it is. And actually, this, today was the first time I really got to notice that transmission with Case driving and I was riding in the passenger seat. Um, and I really noticed he was genuinely using it the way that you described. Really? Like, even in third <laughs> gear, he would go overdrive and then <laughs> then he would turn off overdrive, go down to fourth, and then re-engage the overdrive. <laughs> so <laughs> it was just, it was an interesting thing to see. But um, I think if it were my money, I it, it's it's interesting to get one of those early Corvettes. It is interesting. But I would probably rather have the 89 or newer where they switched over to the ZF six-speed manual. Yes. That just screams sports car to me. It's a full six-speed manual in the most traditional sense. Right. Now, let's talk about the horsepower output. So the 84 Crossfire, 205 horsepower. Another reason not to get a Crossfire (laughs) car. Exactly. Yeah, I think 84s are kind of the the number one year I would avoid. Uh, If you bumped up to an 85 through 91, they went to the L98 uh, V8, and that produced 230 to 250 horsepower and 330 to 345 torque, depending on exactly what year you got. Um, But in 92, they introduced the LT1, which you have some experience with with uh, the Trans Am that we own. Yeah, and you you drove that car for a long time. So the LT1 was a pretty 
pretty significant difference over the L98 revised um, engine completely, much higher end power. Um, it, it had some really bad design flaws like something called OptiSpark, which was yeah. the ignition module that c could not get wet placed underneath the water pump. Yeah. <laughs> so if the water pump were to leak at all, you would lose all ignition, which was just a really bad design. Um, LT1 cars, though, 92 through 96, you're, you're making 300 horsepower in the in the mid to late 90s. Yeah, and 340 pound-feet of torque. So really they're, respectable, they're yeah. They're pretty respectable. And keep in mind, these are pretty light cars. So 300 horsepower in modern day may not sound like it's a screaming V8, but these are pretty quick cars. I mean, even cases 245 horsepower V8, I think, is what his is pumping out. It kind of keeps up with the C5 with the automatic transmission. They're pretty peppy for the time. Um, but obviously the most powerful one that came out was the ZR1, and that came out in 1990, sold through 1995, where it had an LT5 V8 with 375 to 405 horsepower, depending on what year you got. Um, and obviously we, we can't talk about the C4 and not forget the Grand Sport, uh, which we did have, I think we had one pictured earlier. Um, came out 95 to 96, kind of like the swan song of the C4. That had an LT4 V8 with 330 horsepower and 340 pound-feet of torque. And that iconic blue with the white stripe and the two little red side stripes on that front fender. Right. No, yeah, for sure. Um, now, come some other kind of fun facts with the C4, which I love. Um, Chevrolet took it racing, road racing against, um, you know, the, the best that Porsche and Lotus had in the mid to late 80s. And we're talking 944 turbo. And the Corvettes were so fast and they were beating everyone by such a large margin that Porsche and Lotus um, came together and rallied to have them booted out of the series. That's how <laughs> well these CC4s performed, right? Wow. So people give Corvettes hell for being plasticky and unable to go around turns. It's just not true at all. The C4 really was the first era where they pushed the technology of handling to a great extent to the point where they were beating um, uh, Porsches and Lotuses of the day. And that, that, that came up with the idea of creating the Corvette Challenge in the late 1980s. Um, and then, of course, like the ZR1 is a great story. That was a vehicle that had a naturally aspirated V8 that was developed in partnership with Lotus. Really pissed off a lot of people in GM because they felt that like why is the Corvette team going to Lotus to build a V8 when we can do it better? Um, but it was the first overhead cam Chevrolet Corvette engine ever, right? And it revved really high and it made really good power. It made, um, I mean, we're talking nearly 400 horsepower in the in 1990, which blew people's mind, right? Yeah, that was, that was, the that was pretty crazy for for that year. 100%. Yeah, that and the Viper were just nuts. An overhead cam engine. It was like 32 valves, tons of technology in that engine. And then ultimately, the the V8 team internally to GM said, no, screw that, we can do it better. And they were able to achieve similar, if not equal power with the Grand Sport V8, right? With that LT4 with push rods. And that's, of, of all the C4s, that's my favorite. The Grand Sport. The Grand Sport. That, that iconic look with the blue and the white stripe and those two little red stripes on that front fender. It just does not get more Americana iconic look than that, in my opinion. I mean, when I think back to being a kid and playing Gran Turismo, that was the car in Gran Turismo that I loved to drive and loved to enjoy. But yeah, yeah, there it is. Look at that gorgeous car. It is. But um, I mean, let's talk about the values of the C. I mean, you can pick up a good C4 for ten to 
I mean, case pot is for ten, but you can get them on the low end for seven or eight in some cases. Sure. All the way up to fifteen or eighteen thousand dollars, and they're so good for the money. Such a great car. They are. Yeah, hundred percent. And um, I mean, if you just want to go fast, look cool, and have a convertible for less money, you're not going to be able to do it for cheaper. Yeah, and I think of the cars we're talking about today, they're they're probably one of the cheapest options, other than maybe a really rough C3. But I mean, considering. You could buy a, a kind of rough C4 versus a kind of rough C3 for about the same price. The C4 is just so much better value. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 100%. And it's going to be more reliable and more modern and safer and better on gas. Exactly. And easier to get parts for. So, yeah, C4s are great. Now, if you want a little bit more performance with, you know, airbags and they all had OBD2 and they all had modern-ish modern, modern, modern -ish technology, the C5 generation debuted for the 1997 model year and it looked sort of similar with the pop-up headlights. You wrote on here the last car ever made with pop-up headlights. Yeah, I, I didn't know that. So this was made through 2004 and it, since they went with those pop-up headlights for all the years of the C5, this was actually the last car ever to roll off of production line with pop-up headlights, which, I mean, that's got to be a cool enough statistic just in its own to say that I own the last car ever with pop-up headlights. But, you know, this was originally intended to debut in 1993 to celebrate the Corvette's 40th anniversary. But if, if a lot of people don't remember, back in the early 90s, GM was going through some rough times. Mm -hmm. And the eventual launch of this car was kind of delayed. Um, and that's why the you know, the, the C4 kind of carried on a little bit longer than they probably would have liked. But um, but when they did finally debut this in 1997, it was, again, a really revolutionary car. So they, the placement of the transmission allowed this to have a perfect 50-50 weight distribution, which was a first for the Corvette and made it like the best handling Corvette they had ever made. Right, and that was actually the reason the car had pop-up headlights is because it was intended to debut four years earlier where yep. pop-ups were still relatively commonplace. By the time that thing was out in 97, people were like, wow, pop-up headlights in 97? <laughs> but that was like, you know, it was intended. Yeah. And that's another example of where Chevrolet management was about to cancel the Corvette and the, the C5 story is interesting because it was so much push and pull between the engineers and the management to try to get them to allow to do that. But um, yeah, like you talked about, transmission moved to the rear for 50-50 weight distribution and that LS1 was was such a big deal, right? The debut Absolutely. of the LS engine. So an all new generation of small block V8 that was not seen before. And then of course became the LS that we know today, LS2, LS3, right? That the evolution of the LS engine. Um, but yeah, I mean, the C5 actually had some really innovative features as well, like to keep weight down even further, to increase strength. So they, they listened and, and people were frustrated with not being able to get other C4. So they're like, okay, we're gonna get rid of the sill. We're gonna put some of the structure rigidity down the center tube. And then we're gonna use some advanced materials to increase rigidity and decrease weight. So the floors, for example, are a balsa wood composite sandwich. Wow. So there's like a, a layer of plastic, then a thick layer of legitimately balsa wood, super, super lightweight, and then another layer of plastic. But they found that was an advanced material that really helped with the car. Um, zero to 60 back in, in 97, what was it looking at? It was about four and a half seconds if you got the manual transmission. If you got the auto, it was just a four-speed you know, as board, we're aware with ours, you know, yes. It, it wasn't as fast with the automatic transmission. And in fact, I will say this in the podcast, of all the Corvettes we're going to talk about today, mm -hmm. 
a C5, just a base C5 with a six-speed manual, I think is the ultimate sweet spot when it comes to the Corvette. Base C5, six-speed manual. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree. I think you're right because you get a very modern driving experience. You get the reliability of the LS, but you get the affordability of a 23-year-old Chevrolet. Absolutely. Or a 26-year-old Chevrolet. Yeah. Um, Convertible came out in 98. There was a convertible in the C4 as well. Um, Launched as the Fastback Coupe only. They tried to do something really interesting um, in 99, which is a fixed roof coupe. Yeah, I think that was kind of an interesting decision that they not only had this kind of hatchback Corvette, which was traditional to the Corvette, but then they decided to do a fixed roof coupe where the roof didn't, it wasn't a Targa, it wasn't a T-top, it was just completely fixed, kind of like a notchback design. Um, and for whatever reason, they decided that they needed two different types of coupes well, as well as the convertible to sell alongside each other. The interesting story with the fixed roof coupe is that was supposed to be an engineering play. So the idea with the fixed roof coupe is that they would sell it at a lower price than the standard coupe because you couldn't remove uh. the top. And in fact, the initial development for the FRC, as people call it, was it was going to have manual windows, manual seats, no heads-up display. It was going to be the stripped-down, rigid, affordable driver's car. Interesting. But then Corvette management, of course, GM management got involved and said, you can't sell a Corvette with roll-up windows. And then it ended up just being a slightly more affordable, slightly lighter weight version of the standard coupe. So it's supposed to be the stripped-down you know, track car for the road, which was great. But ultimately, that fixed-roof coupe... Um, did see its its time in the sun with the Z06, right? Yeah, and that came out in 2001. It was kind of considered the successor to the ZR1 of the C4 generation. Uh, and so this used a tuned version of that LS1 called the LS6. And they initially only bumped power up to 385, but the following year, they actually went all the way up to 405 horsepower, resulting in a 0 to 60 time for the first time ever below 4 seconds at 3.9 for a Z06. Which is amazing for, you know, 2000, right? 2001. Yeah. That is awesome. Fixed roof coupe. Uh, it improves suspension, improves interior, right, to help with, with, um, with holding you in place in the track, better cooling. It was a fantastic car. And, and nowadays, if you want a car to go fast on a the track, there still is no faster, cheaper way than a Z06. Yeah, and a lot of people may be thinking, too, like, hey, that 405 horsepower, that sounds eerily similar to the ZR1 of the C4 generation, but... This Corvette was significantly lighter, and that is what resulted into the faster times that these got. And it used a standard bushrod LS engine, right, which is super, super reliable. Uh, but some other innovations, right, talked about the convertible, 1998. Um, heads-up display, first Corvette with heads-up display, pretty advanced. Yep, and this was the first Corvette to use a drive-by-wire throttle and steering response, so that way you could actually change the responses. So I know, like, your Corvette has this little thing where you can switch it into sport mode, right? <laughs> and that's where it changes the way that the steering responds, well, right? Well, that little button is for the active handling package. Is it? Okay. So that controls the shock absorber. So there's an option you could buy to go from normal to sport to performance. Gotcha. Um, they say tour sport performance. The issue with that switch is that it's supposed to control the shock absorbers. I don't think it does anything, to be honest <laughs> with you. But it is very expensive when it breaks, and re replacing shock shocks is expensive too because they have to be the the ones with the wire that comes out of them. Kind of like a predecessor to like the the magnetic ride control and like some of the later Corvettes. Gotcha. Um, but uh, this is a good time to stop and kind of talk about some of the C5 comparisons to like let's say a, a 996 911. Okay. Right. So the first water cool 911 
a car which for a long time was like a $15,000, $20,000 car, but now because of the huge popularity of Porsche, it's more like a $25,000 or $30,000 car. So let's compare like um, a 99 C5 to 99 911. Pretty good comparison, right? Yeah. So, so values nowadays, a, a C5 is going to run you anywhere from like 12 to 20 grand, you know. Depending on miles Depending and on the miles and condition. But let's yeah. say you can get a nice manual transmission base C5 like you want for like 16. Sure. Right, which is pretty realistic. Yeah. In comparison, a nice manual transmission 911 even if it's a career or two of the same era same miles let's say 40,000 miles is going to run you 25 or 30 grand so almost so about a $10,000 premium for the Porsche for the Porsche over the Corvette and is it really that much better of a car for an extra 10 grand well it's 100 pounds lighter so okay. 3200 pounds versus 3100 not that much lighter. It has 50 less horsepower, 345 versus 296. Um, and you know the thing that people forget about these, the C5 and the C4 generation is that they handle so well. I mean, yeah. the car's got almost 300 width tires on the rear, and it's got the fully independent suspension. It's, of course, that lightweight composite material. So the car really handles the road well. So everyone that's like, oh, well, the 911's going to handle it. When you get the 200 road course, I think you'd find out probably not by much. Now, the C5 interior, Pretty plastic. Yeah. Some of those 996 interiors are not, not much better, to be they're, honest. They're with you. pretty plasticky too. They're pretty plastic. Well, and here's too. some of the benefits that I like to the C5 too. I would say, at least of all the Corvettes that I've ridden in, and I've ridden in all but the first two and the last generation, it's by far the most comfortable. So mm -hmm. if you wanted to take it on a long drive, this one's going to provide you the most soft, cushy seat for a long drive. And it's way more comfortable than a Porsche. Um, and not only that, but it's just, it feels special when you're in it. It feels low, it feels wide. It feels like it can hug a corner really well. Whereas Porsches, they, they are a cool car and yes, they feel special in their own right, but I would say they don't feel quite as special to drive hmm. as a Corvette. Interesting, Yeah. very interesting. Be a hot take there for Brendan. <laughs> now, of course you get people that be like, well, don't compare the C2, which was more expensive than the Corvette even in 99, compare like a turbo later. But then if you compare the turbo to the Z06, once again, performance, you know, it's going to be pretty pretty comparable between that, that LS6 and then the, the 996 Turbo. Um, and once again, you can get a nice Z06 now for 20, 25, yeah. and a 996 Turbo is going to be 40, right. right? 45 at the very minimum. So you get so much car with the Corvette. And, and like I said, the Corvette purists or the Porsche purists hate to hear it, but they are fantastic value out there. Um, well, so C5 is a good, good generation. And two other points I'd like to make too is reliability and cost of ownership oh, yeah. are going to be way, way lower on the C5 over the course of time. Mm -hmm. And we did a miles per gallon test on the C5 and it got 31 miles to the gallon <laughs> on the highway. Unreal. <laughs> Which is just nuts. I mean, we're talking about a performance car back then where they were not intending it to get really good miles per gallon, but yet it does anyways. Right. Now, to your point, if you want to drive spiritedly you have to get the six-speed manual sure because the 4l60e is a 4l60 it's a four-speed automatic yeah with it's not huge great. ratios it'll do like 60 miles an hour in first gear um but regardless they're both comfortable they're both going to be pretty impressive on the top rpm range and they both handle really well so c5 favorite favorite generation so that's far that's my favorite okay uh, if i were to go out and buy a corvette right now for the money that's the best all right so we are now uh on another day, because Tommy was so enamored talking about the C5 that, well, he just had to go out and drive his own 
personal C5 that he just recently purchased. So we had to break for the rest of the day. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Exactly. No, we had stuff going on, but you do bring up a good point. So the company bought the C5 for 14 and then I bought it off the company for 14,000 and then immediately put 2000 into it. So now it's a $16,199 C5. That's still not bad though. Still not bad. It, it's, it, it is an automatic. So that's its one downfall, but it's in fantastic shape. It's got like what forty something thousand miles on it. Forty three thousand, and now it stops properly. That's so good. It's good, yeah. And Brendan did a. Brendan is a is a magician when it comes to selling cars. So <laughs> I had Brendan sell my Mini GP, which was a challenge. But you found the one guy in Colorado that yeah. really wanted a Mini GP. Yeah, it was a kid going to college here in uh, Boulder, and he had a entry level Mini and wanted to get the top tier Mini of yes. that year. So. Yeah, and then, I mean, Brendan's just a machine when it comes to selling cars. <laughs> um, if you're watching the Cheap Jeep series, he, we already bought, upgraded, and sold the Black Liberty. Yep. <laughs> um, and that was after the power top had failed. That's um, right. Brendan sold the red SL that we did that had been sitting for a long time. So, man, if you need a car sold, what's your number yeah. one tip for selling a car on Facebook? Pictures. Pictures. Good, clean pictures. Clean your car. Clean your car. And take pictures of all of the outside and all of the inside. People want to see everything before they're going to make the trip to come and purchase your vehicle. Mm. And they don't want to buy a vehicle with your dirt and grime and filth in it. <laughs> that's your number one tip. Huh? Yeah. that's. It. I mean, I can't tell you the amount of times I've literally bought a car off of Facebook, cleaned it, took good pictures, and sold it and made a profit. Without doing anything to Without the car. Without doing anything to the car. Wow. Yeah. Really? It, it makes such a big difference. And so few people realize it. And uh, Brendan also is a fantastic detailer guy. Yeah, I do. Yeah. yeah if, if, for cars that are particularly dirty and stinky, I have a special detailer that I bring out that does the whole ozone thing to get the smell out and shampoos everything to make sure it's nice and clean. So Brendan, this is an interesting mini conversation. So sure. Brendan's detail guy is a couple hundred bucks to detail the car. It's like yeah. 250 300 depending on what he's doing, um, which... You know, initially sounds like a lot, but when you look into the world of detailing, that is pennies, it right? Is. Some detailers, and I just learned this recently, are charging like thousands of dollars, oh, yeah. you know, for full paint correction. And that's before you talk about PPF, just like paint correction, interior detail can be a couple thousand dollars if you want a perfect. Yeah, he came in, I think, ceramic coated your guys' Tesla for what, like 225 250 Right. Something like that. If you were to go get a ceramic coat job at a lot of these other shops, you could be literally paying a thousand dollars. Right, which is to nuts get that to done. me. I yeah. mean, I understand that people want their paint perfect, right? But if you're spending a couple thousand dollars on paint, I feel like you're missing the point. Yeah. You know, I mean, you, you, yeah. you, you'd feel bad driving that car if you spent a couple thousand right. on paint because, you know, you're just going to have to do it again. Just get the paint looking good. Try to get some swirls mark out, out swirls, swirls marks out, right? Yeah. Which your guy is great at. He does a nice buff. That's that's the most I would do to paint a few hundred bucks. Sure. Yeah. And and that amount of money, you know, a dirty enough car or a car that needs the help on the paint it is well worth spending a couple hundred bucks to get a professional out that really knows what they're doing and doing yeah. it right. I mean, some guys have been doing it so long that they feel that, you know, they're booked so far out that they need to raise their prices and keep raising. The guy that I have, he just enjoys doing it. So, and he's really good. Yeah, and he's really good at it. And so. the difference between a $300 paint correction and a $3,000 paint correction is not a difference, in my opinion, of $2,700. Yeah, I haven't seen it. No, I honestly, to the naked eye, it, it's really hard to tell. So um, what's your guy's name? We'll give him a free shout-out. Do you want to not? You Hang forgot on. his name, Brendan? Kent. 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 Kent is his name. Yes. I think, it's, is it something detailing? Yes. Clear detailing? Quick. 
quick mobile oh, detailing. Oh, sorry, oh, Kent. God. This, this is, is embarrassing. Well, we'll font it in the description, but yeah. um, Kent is awesome. Yes. Uh, gosh, <laughs> you, you put me on the spot there. I couldn't remember. But yeah, his name is Kent. He does a great job. I haven't had him out in a few weeks because I haven't bought a particularly card a particularly dirty car in quite a while. Actually. What happened to that Passat that you bought back? So you sold it, then it yes. showed up at the auction, you bought it back. What, yeah. What's the state of the Passat? Uh, so I fixed the window on it. The W8, yeah. On the W8, mm -hmm. but that's all I've done to it so far. I actually had to, I had it at my mechanic, I was gonna do a bunch of things to it, and I had to pull it out of my mechanics because the uh, transmission grenaded itself on my Baja bug. Oh, no. And so that took priority Is to it get fixed? up there. No. Oh, uh, no. Yeah, we're going to have to pull the transmission. I found a guy that's uh, down a little bit south of here that's going to rebuild it for 1000 bucks. That's a good deal. Yeah. Yeah, good so. deal. So Did it like, what's, what happened to the trans? Like it completely blew up? So I was on the highway, and I put it into neutral because I was getting ready to exit the highway. Uh, and I just heard this loud crunching grinding noise. I'm like, oh, that doesn't sound good. And so I kind of coasted to about, you know, 20 miles an hour and tried to put it in like second gear, nothing. It was like completely blocked. It wouldn't go into second gear at all. So oh, thankfully no. I was, I had enough momentum where I coasted it into a gas station, came to a stop and I tried to like put it in any gear and it wouldn't go into any gear at all. You had four neutrals. Yeah. Well, you would, you wouldn't even move, huh? The it wouldn't stick. even move. It was just in neutral and it felt like every gear was blocked off. Oh, jeez. Yeah. Oh, man. So. Well, my, my bug is in no better condition right now. So yeah. we are, we have equal uh, non-drivable bugs right now. These old bugs, they're kind of like onions. You fix one thing <laughs> and more, it just reveals another problem more that crap you need to pops fix. Up. Yeah, yes. exactly. Well, let's keep going with our Corvette discussion. Next generation we need to talk about is the 05 through 13 Corvette, the C6 generation. Yeah. You said first Corvette with exposed headlights. I would argue the first gen had exposed headlights. Oh, that's true. Well, you know. I guess it's the first that had exposed headlights since the since first the gen. Since the C2. Yeah, yeah. since mm -hmm. the 50s, basically. Yep. Right, right. Um, but yeah, the C6 came out in 2005 and was sold through 2013. Uh, it was actually five inches shorter and one inch narrower than the C5, which I think is interesting, actually. It was it was a significantly smaller car, even though it was built on, I believe, the same platform <coughs> yeah, as 100%. the C5 was. Yeah, I mean, it was basically a really big facelift on the C5, because once again, Corvette management didn't want to put a ton of money into it, yeah. so it still has a transmission in the rear. LS2 was the debut engine, 400 horsepower with the four-speed auto in 05. Don't get an 05 automatic. Get an 06 or later automatic because you get the six-speed auto. Yep. Um, or, of course, a six-speed manual. Yeah, but in 2008, they got that LS3, which bumped it up to 430 horsepower. And that is the engine that a lot of us, you know, the yeah. enthusiasts really uh, covet because it's just really well known for its Ability to take gobs and gobs of power. Yeah, and gobs and gobs of mods. Yeah, so yes. um, in 08, they went from, like you mentioned, the 6 liter to the 6.2, gained 30 horsepower, but it gained more reliability, more tunability. Um, and in the used market, there's a huge premium for 08 to newer. So we paid 25000 for our 06 with the LS2 with 30,000 miles. And 08, in similar condition, similar mileage, is probably going to be closer to like thirty five. Wow. So 30 or 35 at least. So you're figuring seven, seven to 10 grand more for an LS3. That's yeah. how much more people want them. But the LS2 is still a great engine, 400 horsepower, tons of power, um, better interior than the C5. It would be hard to be worse. Uh, you know, heads up display like the C5 and it had, um, you know, just better seats, better plastics, that kind of thing. One thing I will say is really weird because I've driven your guys' C6 now a bit and 
that that push button start it's definitely like a very early <laughs> push button start attempt you can tell because it's this push button start that towards the top of the button is where you actually start it and I think towards the bottom is accessory. accessory. Yeah. And so it's kind of confusing, you know, because a lot of push button starts nowadays, you just push it once without your foot on the pedal, that's accessory mode. Right. You put your foot on the pedal and push the button, and that starts the car. Whereas this, there were a few times I got into it and I'm like pushing the accessory. I'm like, why is this car not starting? And I'm like, oh, that's right, because I'm an idiot. And I push the top part of the button and get it to start. Yeah, it's super weird. And the key is weird too. It's like this little pancake thing. It's like yeah. a little, little perfect square. Oh, I guess we forgot to silence his phone. Oh no. Naughty, naughty. <laughs> uh, but yeah, you're right. It's a weird push button start. Weird key too. Like it's this little square thing, right? Yeah. And it's got electronic door handles. So there's little buttons instead of like a traditional handle. Yeah, I think this was the first Corvette with the electronic door handles, right? 100%. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Um, but once again, the nice thing about C4, C5, C6 is even if you get the coupe, you get the removable target panel in the middle. Yeah. So they were designed from the get-go to have the removable panel. And then the one thing I don't understand about this generation of Corvette, and this is just personal preference, is you can get a convertible model with a soft top. I don't really know why you would, because the coupe looks better, it's got the fastback design, and you can remove the panel. How hard is it to remove that panel? Because I know Super in cases easy. C4, it's kind of a, a chore. C4 is a mess, because yeah. you got to get like a special Torx tool out. C5 and later is just like bloop, bloop, pop it in the trunk. And and you can do it simple. in like 15 seconds. It okay. does take up the majority of the trunk. So that is a reason people like the convertibles, is because you can put the top down instead of a trunk. But I think it's better looking than the convertible. You don't yeah. have to deal with like someone slashing your soft top or, or the wear that a soft top has. Less wind noise. Yeah. Right. Is, is it something you can do by yourself, removing yeah, the top? Yeah, uh -huh. it's a okay. little tricky, but I just did it yesterday by myself. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, the panel's plastic, like the rest of the car, so right. probably only weighs 15 pounds. Um, and then what's nice is they're, they're, when you pop the trunk, there are these little holes that they actually slide into. So then they oh, secure nice. in a place, there's little latches. Okay. So you can't wiggle them around. You know what car I have that does the exact same thing? The Del Sol. The Del Sol. Same exact thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, same exact <laughs> it's idea. interesting. Yeah, but your okay. Del Sol, you also takes up the whole trunk, right? It does. When you put it in there. Yeah, yeah. it pretty much makes the trunk uh, useless. One issue with the Targas, maybe your Del Sol is the same way, but it does get kind of buffety. So like at highway speeds, yeah. especially with the window up, you get a little bit of buffeting. Um, but would you get the coupe or the convertible in the in these generations? Oh, I'd go with the coupe. Yeah. I mean, just take the structural rigidity and its lighter weight. Well, they would tell you that there's no difference in structural rigidity. Because remember, yeah, they engineer them as convertibles first. That's true. Yeah. But speaking of coupes versus convertibles, in 06, um, the Z06 came out in the C6 generation. Yeah, and the Z06 was actually equipped with the largest displacement small block engine ever built at the time. What a weird statement the yeah small, the largest displacement small, small block, block <laughs> engine yeah but it was a seven liter small block v8 pumping out 505 horsepower and it was doing a zero to 60 of like 3.6 seconds it was quite a screamer in, back in 06 think about how much displacement that is seven liters seven liters yeah i you know my uh the the vehicle that introduced us my 454 um Suburban, yeah, wasn't that seven point two liters, something like that? It was like 7 .4. a heavy duty suburban, big block, meant, meant for towing. Yeah, you know, this is only point two liters smaller than that in a Corvette. Yeah, three point six seconds to sixty. Now the Z06 C6s are actually some of the rarest cars because they were introduced in 06. The financial crisis happened in 07 and 08, and then in 09 came the ZR1, which is a supercharged V8. Yeah, so C6 Z06s are pretty rare. 
because financial crisis, people didn't have money, and then the people that did have money went and wanted the ZR1. So yeah. they're, they're kind of a, a rare bird, the, the, the C6, C06s, and well, they're pretty valuable. Well, yeah, and not only are they the largest displacement small block, but they were the most powerful production naturally aspirated engine that General Motors had ever made up until the latest C06. Yeah, which is crazy. So yeah. from 06 through 2021. Um, and then, of course, ZR1. I remember when that thing came out. I was 12 years old in 09. And that was just, like, insane. Like, you could get a $100,000 car with 638 horsepower. Yeah, that was nuts at the time, the fact that they did that. The one thing, though, that they did that I didn't really understand is that hood that had the kind of clear plexiglass uh, way that you can view the, the supercharger, yeah. But they just put this weird, like, like hump thing, hump thing <laughs> on there that didn't even match what was underneath it. Yeah, that was pretty stupid. Yeah, yeah, that was classic. Everything cost else savings. about that car is fantastic. But the other C6, which is definitely a sweet spot, which came out in the slightly later cars, was the um, the Grand Sport. Grand Sport. Yeah, those were cool. So that was a wide body C6. So you got like the the Z06 body, but you got the NA engine. Oh, you know, the, gotcha. the small block 6.2. And those actually were so popular that by the end of C6 production, they were outselling the standard cars. Really? Because people just wanted the look of the wide body and the, the Grand Sport. But they didn't want the performance of the Z06? Yeah, they couldn't afford the Z06 or the, the ZR1. So those are really good cars. And those are going to be like 35 to 40 grand still. Yeah. Um, the funny thing, so as we talk about moving to the next generation C7, I was just reading an interesting interview with Bob Lutz. And once again, development of C7 was so far behind schedule. So by 2013, the C6 was pretty old. It had yeah. carpet on the doors. It was not. It was. It was showing its age. Um, C7 apparently was was very very far delayed. And I was reading an interesting stat. the The GM team allocated 900 million dollars for the development of the Chevrolet Cruze. and yeah. something like 190 million dollars for the generation of the the next generation of Corvette. It's just so amazing how much these engineers do. Yeah, with, with so, so little. little five on these times, Corvettes. five times the budget went to the stupid Chevrolet Cruze that went to the C7 Corvette. And when's the last time you saw first-generation Chevrolet Cruze? Well, they're not that reliable. They're not great. Yeah, they they're just not very good cars in general. Yeah, they're they have stiff seats and they blow their turbos. <laughs> yeah, but it's funny that like yeah. the C7 is iconic and collectible and people love them. But that had a little teeny weeny budget. The Cruze, which turned out to not be very good as as time has gone on, got a huge budget. But that's kind of GM. Well, I also learned interesting. Sorry, Brendan. No, no problem. Last other thing on the subject is uh, they had actually planned to do a mid-engined Cadillac sports car, oh, really? based on yeah, like a Corvette-based sports car with mid-engine, um, starting in like 09, 010. But because of the financial crisis, that got binned. Well, weren't they for before they came out with the C7? Weren't they? considering the idea of going mid-engine at that time 100%. Anyways, yeah, so it's a similar kind of idea, and then they just didn't have the budget for it. Um, similar thing we should talk about, too, related to the C6 Corvette. Do you remember the Cadillac? What was that thing called? XLR. XLR. Yeah, it had the uh, power-retracting hardtop on yes. it. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know. Um, I want to say, did those, didn't the early versions of those have a lot of issues yeah because well it was underneath it was a c6 corvette so it's a okay. really good platform cadillac design north star v8 oh gosh 
<laughs> the legendary North Star. The North Star just ruins everything. Everything it touches, the North yeah, Star ruins. Oh, my gosh. And then the XLR-V used a supercharged North Star V8. Oh, man. <laughs> As if the North Star wasn't unreliable enough, they slapped a supercharger on it. So they had the, fan and, oh, the fantastic C6 Corvette platform, right? Uh, good styling. I think they looked really cool. Yeah. And then they stuck the stupid head gasket blowing... <laughs> Water pump failing North Star into the into the. Why couldn't they have just like? They should have just left the engine. Just leave the just engine. Leave, in there. It's already in there from just, the Corvette. Just do your typical GM thing and change the body styling a little bit. Throw a Cadillac emblem on it and put the hard top on it and push it out the door. And it was expensive and it was kind of a mess. But um, yeah. yeah, they sold a peak of three thousand seven hundred thirty North Stars in 05, which is not many. Fifteen thousand total. Compare that to Corvette numbers and it's. Maybe if they hadn't put the North Star in that thing, it would still be around. Like, there'd be another generation of the XLR. I didn't know they did an XLR-V. That's news to me. I thought they oh, were really? only the standard North Star, but I guess they did a supercharged North Star, which is the same engine in a car I had no idea was produced ever, the STSV. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And that car made, with the supercharged V8, 443 horsepower. So less, well, let's see. STSV, 443 in 09. Meanwhile, 09 Corvette, 430. So you got three more, four, 13 more horsepower in the North Star XLRV and none of the reliability. There's like no point to that <laughs> whatsoever. No point. That's funny. Wow, what were they thinking? So zooming on to the next generation, um, the last relatively affordable. These are coming down in price now quite a bit, but the C7 from 2014 to 2019. Yeah, I actually really like these. Um, the main reason why I really like these is because they decided to carry over the manual transmission and then step up the game a little bit by offering it with a seven-speed manual transmission. That was weird, wasn't it? Yeah, I think I think it was really interesting. Um, I don't know how useful having a seven-speed manual really is, uh, but this car and the Bronco are the only two cars I know of that did seven-speed manuals, unless there's others that I'm missing out 911, there. Porsche 911 has a really? seven-speed right now. I didn't know they were doing that. Yeah, they're doing okay. that. Um, yeah, I mean, great car. Once again, more of an evolution of the C6, but 460 horsepower out of that 6.2-liter V8. Z06 came out in 2015 with a supercharged engine, 650 horsepower. Kind of a low spot in the Corvette history, though, because that car came out, and if you recall, they were overheating badly on tracks. So it was like oh, the track really? car that was overheating. So this, the Z06 was kind of a, a slightly dark spot in the C7, and then the ZR1 came out with almost 800 horsepower. Well, in this time, the ZR1 was only a one-year model. I didn't know that. Yeah, so on the C6, they made it from 09 through 2013, whereas on the C7, it was just kind of the swan song of the C7. I think, and I think that that ZR1, that 2019 ZR1, will probably go down to be one of the most collectible I bet you're uh, right. Corvettes out there. They also have that insane wing on the back, right? And just the, the bizarre scoops in the front. One of the most interesting designs. Well, and the thing that I think is interesting about it, so it used, that, it used a 6.2 liter V8, but it had a 2.6 liter Eaton supercharger. Jesus. So combined, you're talking about something that's you know, if you can combine the the engine and the supercharger on there, you're talking 8.8 .8 liters of motor mm -hmm. <laughs> pumping out power to the rear wheels. Which is amazing, yeah. yeah. And then, of course, lastly, brings us to the, well, last thing about the C7. First Corvette, I think, that got a really nice interior. 
right? Yeah. The, the interiors were much nicer in the C7 than the C6 or older Corvettes. Made them a lot more premium. Um, still kept an affordable price. Definitely one of the best Corvettes ever made. And that brings us to the new one, the C8 2020 to present, right? First ever mid-engine Corvette. Yep. Which was a design that the original Corvette designer Zora Duntoff wanted from the start. Um, he put GM's first production mid-engine sports car since the Pontiac Fiero. Yeah. Way to bring I mean, the Fiero into the conversation, <laughs> Brendan. Because, uh, yeah, I mean, it harkens back to those days. And and I'm going to say something that may be controversial, and you may disagree with it, but I am not a fan of the C8 whatsoever. I like the C7 more. I agree, actually. Yeah, yeah, I think the design is cleaner on the C7. I love the exhaust sound on the C7. And the C8, the design is a little fussy for me. Like, yeah. it's just a lot of angles going on. I think the C7 is just a cleaner-looking design. Well, not only that, but they dropped the option of a manual transmission mm. for the C8, which I think was a big mistake. I mean, the C, the Corvette is supposed to be the everyman supercar, right? The, the car that you can buy for surprisingly cheap that gives you supercar-like performance. And yes, I get it that, you know, Ferrari has gone away from the manual transmission, but I feel like the everyman supercar should have that option of the manual transmission. So... Brendan, of all the generations that we've talked about, which one is the sweet spot? Which one is your favorite? Are you still sticking with the C5 as a sweet spot? Yeah, I think for the money, I would go with the C5. I mean, just the fact that you get the comfort, the reliability, uh, and all the performance for a really low price. I mean, it's not much more than a C4 Corvette, but it's still ten grand cheaper than a C6 Corvette regularly. And I do like the C6, but it's... It's, it's not fast enough to justify the extra ten grand to me. Now, for me, I agree completely. I think fifteen to twenty grand, get yourself a good base Z- C5. Yeah. Don't bother with the Z06 unless you're tracking it, and then definitely get the Z06. Sure. But if you want, you know, a little bit more of a modern experience, but still for pennies on the dollar compared to what you'd get from Europe. I mean, the C7, right? You can get a good C7 now for oh, yeah. forty grand. Um, 460 horsepower, still feels like a modern car, still has a fantastically modern transmission, right, and a good interior. So those two are my, my favorite in the lineup, I think, right now. The only reason I would say more C5 than C7 is I've actually, I have driven a C7, mm-hmm. and it was surprisingly uncomfortable. The seats are like, like it, huh? rock hard. It felt really tight on the inside. Mr. 90s GM guy over yeah, here. Yeah, I, I like a good comfy seat, man. I mean, you should be comfortable in the car that you're driving. Yeah, no, I'll, I'll give you that. You're right about that. Well, folks, we'd love to hear your feedback. This was a fun podcast. Um, we'll try to do some more of these classics podcasts. Maybe once a month we'll be able to do a cool topic. If you have any other fun topics, send us a note on Patreon. Nissan Hardbody? Oh, yeah. Nissan yeah. Hardbody is the best generation Corvette. Yeah. Thank you, Brendan, for remembering <laughs> that. we got to mention the Hardbody every podcast. Um, send us a note uh, at Patreon, TFL Car, um, on Patreon, or send us an email, info at But, Brendan, thank you for your help. Great work with this list, buddy. Yeah, well, it's been fun. I really enjoy these podcasts, and hopefully we get a lot of you guys watching. And, hey, if you're a sponsor out there and want to sponsor our podcast, we will certainly take that. We will take your sponsorship yeah. quite kindly. <laughs> Thanks, guys, for watching. Take care. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. 
Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.